You're listening to the Sports Talk Podcast with Darcy Waldegrave from News Talk ZB. Paris Olympics just under a year away now. For those with their eyes on the podium at the next Olympic Games, what does the next year look like? What do coaches, athletes, teams and sporting bodies need to do to increase their chances of success? One man who knows is coaching guru Wayne Goldsmith. His client list includes professional sports teams, Olympic athletes and coaches all over the world. And he joins us on Sports Talk. Wayne, great to chat to you. A year seems like an awfully long time. But how precise is the planning in the final year leading into an Olympic Games? I don't know. Do I say Kiora? Do I say G'day, mate? Or do I say Bonjour, Monsieur Pine? Like, what? The, <laughs> I don't know how we open our, our chat. You know, with, a, with a year out, and it's, it goes very, very quickly. And, you know, I often say to, to coaches and, and to athletes, don't be lulled into a false sense of security about that last year because you take off the time that you're going to have to spend to travel and maybe qualify. Then you take off that resting and downtime. Then you take off travel, take off media commitments, take off sponsor commitments, take off a bit of time for injury. And all of a sudden, well, maybe it's only about nine months in reality that you've got training time. And that's assuming everything else goes right. So a year is not even a year which is why everything you do for the next 12 months has got to be well-planned and very methodical. When you look at an Olympic cycle, Wayne, you know, four years, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the amount of time between Olympic Games, between Commonwealth Games, between World Cups and a lot of sports. So often, you know, athletes, teams, coaches work on that four-year cycle. But, um, you know, so when we get to one year out, uh, are you past the point of no return? If the if the last three years have been suboptimal, is there any chance to to pull that ground back with only a year to go? Well, it depends how far back you are, Pliny. That if if you're a long, long way back, you tend to take maybe a few chances. Particularly if this is your last Olympics, and you know I've got one last crack. If you're a long way off the pace, you might be tempted to take some chances. If, however, you're a genuine chance, the general rule in the last 12 months is don't change anything major. So by the time you're in this period, you've practiced your tapering, you've practiced your diet, your equipment is very tightly honed, you know your training cycles, you know when you're going to peak. You should know things like what's the weather going to be like in July on the day of your competition in Paris for the last 30 years what are the extremes because i know i've made them a couple of mistakes early on in olympic campaigns where you said oh you know what's the average temperature it's likely to be in barcelona or what's the average temperature in athens georgia before we head into the olympics in land or in in greece when we were in over there in, in the olympics in 2004 you think well as long as we know what the average temperatures would we'll be right well, the average temperature is just that. It's just the average. You could have a 10, 15, 20 degree difference. And unless you're prepared to compete and perform at your best across those extremes, you can be underdone. So for the people who are genuine winning chances, this is the fine tuning and really paying attention to the minutiae. If you're a long way off the pace, you still may be able to take a few risks or chances, particularly in the equipment area. You, can, you might find a breakthrough here and there, but for the, the, the genuines, the genuine hopes, they're very close to where they're going to be next year anyway. 
Can we talk about the, the concept of peaking and peaking at the right time? Targeting a window of time when a very important sports event is going to take place, the Olympic Games, and then structuring your build-up to reach the height of your performance right at the right time. It seems fairly precise, fairly scientific. How much of a science is, is peaking at the right time? Oh, it, it, it's an incredible science. It's a little bit of art. It's a little bit of guesswork. It's a little <laughs> bit of all those things all together. But what the, what the experienced coaches have done particularly and, and, and the athletes that have been going to world championships and national championships, Commonwealth Games, and going to major international competition, they've practiced their peakering, their peaking and tapering strategy. We might have come up with a new word there, peakering. <laughs> Let's just run them together. Let's do it. But they've, they've practiced those routines in those competitions and they've taken notes and they've recorded. So, for example, a really, really common thing to do is you might be going to the New Zealand Championships last year. Well, you might have said, well, we're going to try a four-week peaking and tapering strategy to be right where we need to be in July. And you'd take note. You'd say, well, what did we do that really worked? What do we know worked during our peaking and tapering strategy that worked really well for us. What didn't work at all so that we can avoid the things we know got in our way and we can repeat the things that led to our success. The bottom line with that is you don't want to be getting to June next year, middle of June, and saying, let's try a new peaking and tapering strategy and take a punt on what's going to happen in Paris. The smart ones have gone through their peaking and tapering strategy this July, last July, July, well, providing COVID wasn't, wasn't a big problem, but they would have practiced those strategies and learned from them. The ones that, that, that rely on wishing and hoping and luck and even prayer, they're not great strategies for success. So they would have practiced all those things. You've mentioned tapering there a few times. So, so tell us a bit more about that. It's, as I understand it, when you start to ease off as you get closer and closer to the event that you're looking to, to peak for. So when does tapering start? Again, is there a science to this, Wayne? There's been a lot of work done on it for really, as far back that I can remember was reading some work on tapering that was done in the 1980s. And there's been a lot done since then. So we know that to be the best, the single most important thing in getting to the top in any sport is consistent hard training. And hard can mean a whole range of things. We'd really say consistent optimal training. So you're doing the maximum amount of training that you can do and stay fit and healthy and well and maintain sleep patterns and all those things. And what we know is that, that all athletes will say when they're in heavy training, they're tired, they're exhausted, they're always sleepy, they're always struggling to maintain weight, all those sort of things. During a taper, you taper off the amount of training that you're doing. And all of a sudden, this body that's been trained and pushed and driven for months and months feels amazing because you've recovered, you don't have that residual fatigue from day to day, week to week, and your body says, let's go, I'm ready to go, I don't feel tired anymore. That balance between fatigue and training is in the right balance, and then bang, you get those great results. How we figure that out, it, that is still a little bit of science, but a lot of trial, a lot of error, a lot of guessing, a lot of note-taking, a lot of feedback with the athlete by saying to them, how do you feel? Because it's, it's an interesting thing with tapering, Pointy, that very, very commonly athletes in hard training, when they start their taper, 
they feel worse for the first period. Really common in sports like swimming, rowing, gymnastics, diving, long-distance running, those sports with huge time commitments. When they start a taper, which could be anywhere from a week to four weeks in most sports, the first week on taper, they feel terrible because they've broken their routine, they've changed the amount of work they do, their sleeping is affected. Very common that we just... We call it taper flu. Everybody feels worse usually in that first part. Very common, very normal, very natural. But then as the body says, hey, this is really good. I'm not training so hard anymore. Let me at them. Over the next week, two weeks, three weeks, you start to see some amazing performances come through. You mentioned qualifying before, and that is another dynamic I'm really interested in because a lot of athletes have to qualify for the Olympic Games in whichever event they're they're looking to get to the games in so does that require then double peaking in many ways yeah double peaking and triple peaking are terms that are used quite often in sports so you're all over it as usual that what will happen is that for for some sports where there's intense competition and it's an absolute fight just to make the team there'll be what we call a small peak or a major peak, a minor peak, a major peak, a big peak or a little peak. So you might be, again, for example, you might be going to New Zealand championships and you're a genuine medal chance. Well, you've still got to do a great job at New Zealand championships, but you don't need to be absolutely in the best of best competition because you might be just a very, very good athlete within New Zealand. You might have one or two competitors And you think, well, look, as long as I'm competitive, I'm going to make the team anyway. I'll back off a little bit on training. I might have an easy week. I might have an easy fortnight beforehand. And then when I go to the Olympics, I'll have my major peak where I train really hard and then I do my normal four-week taper. And again, this would have all been done this year and it would have been done last year so that the coaches and the athletes know how the mind and the body are going to respond to taper. And, you know, when we say peaking too, it's not just because everyone thinks of the the easy things, which is I'm going to decrease the amount of training we do. The really complicated thing is how do you arrive at a mental peak? How are you at an emotional peak? How are you at a peak in so many other areas? That's when the complication sets in because it's not necessary that you're, you're physically rested and ready to go. That, that also means that your mind is also ready to go. That can be something completely different. And the athletes that do great, Piney, it's when physically, mentally, technically, strategically, when all those things are at their absolute best, when and where it matters. And that's really the art of coaching and preparing athletes for the Olympics. All right. Well, we've established that planning is extremely important. And there's a saying about the best laid plans. And, and, you know, it's rare, isn't it, for any plan and any walk of life to go 100% smoothly. So how much room is there inside such a structured plan for athletes and coaches to, to pivot, to react to setbacks, for example, injuries even? Well, it can be even, it can be even more um, difficult than just injuries. One of the most Uh, crushing things that can happen in the last year of an Olympics is one of the international sporting federations will go, you know what we need to do for the next Olympics? Instead of making it a 40-minute event, it's going to be a 26-minute event. Or instead of making it a two-round competition, we're going to do nine rounds and everyone's going to have to do it on one leg. 
it, notoriously, with a year to go, sporting federations quite often internationally will go, we'll do some rule changes because the Olympics are a real showcase. We want people to get excited about it. Let's make it a little bit faster and a bit dynamic. So you've had this young kid from the time they've been 10, you've sold them the Olympic dream, they're ready to go. And a year out, I don't know, the International Volleyball Federation or anybody goes, oh, you know what we need to do? We need to have 27 players on the court instead of four or five. And let's make it a real spectacle. And you've got to rethink. The, the, the lines that we throw at coaches are things like anything that can go wrong probably will go wrong. Be prepared to perform when or where it matters, no matter what happens to you or what's happening around you. And some of the things that coaches have done over the years is deliberately creating challenges in training and in lead-up competitions so that athletes learn to adapt to whatever's there. Because the great thing, Piney, is if there's a rule change or if there's a problem within a race or a big weather, everyone's going to be subject to the same thing. And it was a great story that I like to tell about Don Talbot, the, the wonderful swimming coach who's may rest in peace. And what Don would quite often do in national camps three years, two years, and a year out from an Olympic Games is he would lay little traps. Like he would ring bus drivers, for example, and he'd say, mate, I know you're going to pick the team up at 2 o'clock. I want you to be 45 minutes late. Because typically when you go to an Olympic Games, the traffic is horrendous. Things are late. You never get there on time. So Don would set up little scenarios so that the athletes would have to adapt. He wouldn't tell them that the bus was going to be late. So the poor old bus driver, Piney, used to cop an absolute mouthful <laughs> yep. when, the, when they got on. But they had to learn to deal with adversity. Another one he used to do was, was and I, I learned so much from Don, but another thing he used to do is he, he'd, he'd say to the bus driver again, I don't know where he picked on them, but he used to say to the bus driver, instead of driving all the way to the practice venue, I want you to stop 4Ks out and the team's got to walk in. And again, he would do it a year out at a World Championship or Commonwealth Games. So that if that happened for real at the Olympic Games, when it was incredibly important to be able to do what you need to do when and where it matters, the athletes would jump out, put their backpacks on and walk the rest of the way with smiles on their faces going, we don't care, we've gone through this before. And where I see first-time coaches and first-time athletes battle in Olympics is it was a, another friend of mine, a, a guy called Bill Davern, who I work with in triathlon. He said to me one morning, he said, Goldie, there is no Olympic fairy. He, the, he said, I've realised after going to a few Olympics that nothing goes the way you expected. There isn't anyone sprinkling fairy dust and everything goes wonderfully and beautifully. You've got to be prepared for everything to go wrong and still perform. And what I learned from him and certainly what I learned from Talbot is for coaches and athletes to plan to do what you need to do in the Olympic environment and you know, and, and doing little things like that or or hiding athletes' gear, or only ethical and moral things, of course, but you know, doing things where the athletes have got to solve a problem at the last minute under pressure so when it happens for real, they're not surprised and they can still get up and win. Such a fascinating topic. Always an education chatting to you, Wayne. Let's hope that there are uh, plans in place and uh, and also uh, you know plans for the unexpected over the next year for our top Olympic athletes as they look ahead to Paris next year. Always love chatting to you, mate. Thanks for taking the time. Bonjour, monsieur. <laughs> Bonjour. Au revoir, monsieur. 
For more from Sports Talk, listen live to News Talk ZB from 7 p.m. weekdays or follow the podcast on iHeartRadio.